This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 41 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and my special guest for this episode is someone that you might recognize from your email inbox because he is the author of the iOS Dev Weekly newsletter. It's Mr. Dave Verver. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hi, John. How are you doing? Nice to, uh, nice to be here. Yeah, it's super great to have you on. So uh, I actually just read your latest newsletter, which uh, at the time we record, that was issue number 390. That's 390 weeks worth of newsletters, Dave. That's a lot. It's getting close to 400, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, in fact, it's nearly, it's going to be eight years this year. Um, so it started in, um, I think, August uh, of 2011. Um, and yeah, that'll be eight years as of August this year. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good streak. And have you been doing it like every single week uh, for those eight years? Or have you missed any week or taken any break or anything like that? So I take one week off um, uh, every year, although actually a couple of years I also didn't take that week off. Um, the The week in between the Christmas and New Year um, holidays in the, uh, in the UK here, um, I, I normally take that week off because um, not a lot of people are reading iOS news uh, in that week. Um, right. But apart from that, no, every single Friday for eight years. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite incredible. So how did this whole journey get started? I mean, eight years ago, there wasn't much of an iOS community. I mean, iOS was just kind of getting off the ground then, and the iOS SDK must have just been released like a year before that or something like that. There certainly wasn't any Swift or anything like that. So, you know, where did the idea come from to kind of start this newsletter and to just keep going for, for this amount of time? Well, there was there was some kind of community. There was, um, I mean, there was already an iOS community because... Uh, I well, I I don't know whether you remember, but back then the amount of hype and um, noise around iOS development was absolutely deafening. It was there was every everybody was talking about it. Nobody could uh, keep themselves from talking about iOS development. It was definitely the hot topic. Right. Everybody wanted an app. Everybody wanted an app. Every company wanted an app, even though they didn't need an app. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so there was there was already a community there, but also a lot of what the community was at that time was the Mac development community, and yeah. uh, uh, and of course that was a huge community and had been for many many years before I even got involved in in that because I I did I did write um, a Mac application before the iOS um, before the iPhone came out and before iOS uh, was a thing, um, and so I I wasn't a long term Mac developer, but I had learned Objective-C and done uh, some playing around and written one and released one application there. Um, but the the answer to, to answer your question, why did I start the newsletter? Um, I was a big fan at the time of um, a couple of other newsletters that were in this kind of format. So there was one called uh, Ruby Weekly, uh, which is run by somebody called Peter Cooper. Um, it's still going today. Um, and that started, I think, maybe like a year before iOS Dev Weekly. Um, and um, that was effectively the same kind of idea, like a roundup of the week's uh, links, but for Ruby. And I was a, a Ruby developer as well. Um, and so 
that was just something that I was subscribed to. Uh, I really liked that format. I found that I consumed the information in that newsletter really uh, efficiently. I, I found that the, the I found it a very valuable thing to receive one email a week with here are some things that you should read. Exactly, like a little roundup. Exactly, yeah. And so, but there wasn't one of those for uh, iOS developers, and so I thought, well, maybe I could do that. Um, without really thinking it through. Uh, and <laughs> I chatted with a friend of mine and he said, yeah, that's a great idea. You should definitely do that. Um, and I dropped Peter an email actually uh, and just said, oh, I'm planning to do this um, uh, just to, to kind of let you know, see if he had any advice. Uh, and we had a little conversation and uh, signed up for a MailChimp account and off off I went. Um, and, and yeah, the rest is history really. Yeah, that's awesome. It's funny how many stories or how many kind of products and projects start that way. Like they all have that origin story of, well, I saw someone do something and I thought, well, I might do something like that too, but you know, within my field. And then I told my friend about it and they said, well, go for it. And then I went for it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very, very common. It's uh, very similar with so many of my things as well. It's just like, you see something, you get inspired by it, you tell someone about it, you get some kind of, you get that one piece of validation that you really need to kind of just convince yourself to go for it. And then you just, you know, go for it. I often joke with, because uh, I'm still friends with the person who did validate it for me, I'm, I often joke with him that it's his fault that I have to write it every week. <laughs> yeah, especially like if he asks you if you want to go for beers or something on a Friday, you're like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, this is all your fault, can't go. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I also remember um, vividly the feeling of, because I would say from the point of deciding to do it to actually sending out the first issue, uh, I think was like, two weeks, including getting the site up and getting the first issue written and uh, and also doing the other things that I was doing at the time as well. Um, so it all happened fairly quickly. And I just remember um, sending out that first issue and then thinking, hold on a minute, I got to do this all over again next week. Where am I even <laughs> going to find? Where am I even going to find enough articles to link to next week? That's right. crazy. Um, but actually, that turned out never to be a problem. There's, in fact, the opposite is the problem. There's too much uh, information. Uh, it, the, the problem is picking what to link to rather than finding stuff to link to. Yeah, I can totally imagine. We're going to get back to that uh, topic a little bit later in the show. Uh, but I, you said something there that I want to talk a little bit more about, which is this kind of weekly commitment. And that's something that I also get asked quite a lot by people is like, how can you keep yourself motivated to write a new article every single week? And it's funny because both of us were kind of in the same situation here that we have signed up, you know, ourselves, we have put ourselves in this position where we kind of need to produce something every week not you know not because you know someone has hired us to do that but just because we have that routine going so first of all i, I want to hear kind of your answer to that question like how do you keep yourself motivated every week to to produce this newsletter and to you know put all that energy into it well i really backed myself into a corner by calling it ios dev weekly um, <laughs> should have called it monthly <laughs> oh i should i shouldn't have specified the amount of time uh, right. between issues in the name of it but actually in some ways, I'm really glad that I did because I am absolutely convinced that one of the main reasons that it was as successful as it has been, and to be honest, it was, it has been many orders of magnitude more successful than I ever expected it to be. But I think one of the reasons that it has been so successful is that absolute commitment to consistency in every single week it comes out. Um, and, and I think that's, 
a really powerful thing. I often think of it like I'm basically, I'm not shipping software every Friday, but I'm shipping something every Friday. And I think shipping stuff and pushing that publish button um, is a really important part of keeping yourself um, actually producing content, actually doing things. And whether that content is software, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's a blog post, whether it's a tweet, you know, yeah. whatever it is, the, the, the constant production of whatever you're doing is, is good. Maybe it's just to commit into your repository, but having that commitment to, I am going to make progress towards my goal every single week is, is, is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely something to be said for routines, both in terms of like, you know, producing things like for both of us, having that routine now, you know, I'm sure after 390 weeks of doing this, you you have a sort of a routine of doing it. It doesn't come as a surprise to you. Oh, it's Friday, I have to write a newsletter, you kind of kind of know that. And that's what something that people say, you know, always about getting rid of bad habits, the hardest part is that that the habit, it's the that routine, whether it's, you know, you're trying to quit smoking or eat better or whatever it might be, work out better. Uh, but the same is also true for for good productive um, routines as well. Like once you're into that routine, you're, you have that momentum going, uh, it's just easier to keep going, actually, like it just gets easier and easier. Uh, because you you're you're kind of structured your work around that weekly delivery like you say of course some weeks are more difficult than others like oh yeah you know i've i've been i've i've written ios dev weekly in some unusual places because <laughs> i've been you know on holiday somewhere or um i've been on a client site or you know i've been midway through like a conference or a training course or something like that you know and it, every single week it's got to get written and it's got to go out and um and I, I think that's it's good to have that discipline to do that but it, it does it does like there is definitely a cost to it oh yeah absolutely it's uh it's also funny that you mentioned that because uh, i tweeted something like i don't know six months ago or something where i said like here are some locations where i've been writing articles it was everything from like a, a beach to a boat to, sure. <laughs> to you know an island you know it's it's very funny how these things work out i've been there yeah all right, so we want to talk more later about what exactly goes into producing something like a newsletter, and we have some other really great topics lined up as well. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about kind of your your history before you started iOS Dev Weekly uh, and the things that you're doing right now. You were actually doing uh, training, iOS development training and workshops and things like that. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. I, for, for many years, I ran training courses and workshops for people who were learning. Um, uh, at the time, it was mainly Objective-C. Uh, in fact, it was entirely Objective-C because it was in the days before uh, Swift even existed. Right. Um, so I used to teach iOS uh, training courses um, with Objective-C. It was it was never really my plan to um, become a teacher of, of any kind, but... Uh, my family is very much a family of teachers. My uh, dad was a, a lecturer before he retired. My mother was a school teacher. My granddad was a school teacher. Uh, my uncle was a lecturer. You know, I come from absolutely a family full of teachers. Wow. And it was never really my dream to be uh, involved in teaching. But once I started doing it, I found actually I, I loved it. And I get a lot out of... Um, that process of teaching somebody something and watching how they um, how they click and how they get 
the concepts and how they start to progress. And then you hear back from people later, um, that, uh, that they've been successful or, or, um, uh, you know, they've, they've got into the career that they wanted to. And, and that's a really amazing feeling. Um, and even though I'm not doing any, um, formal teaching anymore because, uh, my career has kind of moved a little, uh, bit since then, but, um, I, I do really miss that. And, uh, and I was left delivering those uh, uh, the, 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 the workshops. Yeah, that's super cool. I think that there's a lot of people, more than you might think, uh, that are in a position of teaching. You might not be like running a you know training company and doing workshops full time, but a lot of people are mentoring people within their company or uh, you know doing some sort of live streams or online things or going to speak at conferences. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting to just hear like for you, what are some of your kind of top tips when it comes to teaching? Like, what do you think goes into uh, creating like a really good workshop or, or teaching someone uh, something like iOS development in kind of a good way? I always think when I was developing the course materials for, for what I taught, um, it's it never felt like I was teaching them um, enough uh, because the iOS SDK, even at that time, you know, I started those workshops in 2009 and I ran them for probably up five or six years, something like that. Um, and um, you try and put together like a week's worth of workshop and it feels like you've covered 10% of the iOS SDK. If that, you know, it's such a huge um, thing to try and teach somebody, but actually what you are teaching them is the techniques that they can learn, uh, that they can use to learn everything else with. So you teach them the core concepts, you teach them a little bit, and you show them where to go to get more information. And actually, I think that's part of what I still do with iOS Dev Weekly. You know, um, iOS Dev Weekly was a good place to send people at the end of the training courses. Like, well, if you subscribe to this newsletter, then I'll give you some stuff to read every week. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, and, you know, writing a blog post is teaching people. Even if the purpose of your blog post isn't to teach people something, the fact that you're writing a blog post about anything to do with iOS development is going to teach people iOS development. Because even if you're blogging about a problem you have, other people are going to read that and learn from it. And you get a lot of like accidental learnings as well in an article that you're writing. Uh, it's very funny because sometimes I will write about, let's say, you know, functional networking or time traveling in unit tests or whatever the topic might be. And then I get feedback from someone that they learn something which is completely unrelated to the actual topic I was writing about. But they just like from one of the code samples, they saw some kind of programming technique or they they saw some pattern that they haven't been using before. And they, they learned that from that article. So I think also like just putting code out there, whatever shape or form it might be, it's always an opportunity for someone to learn something, even if it might not be like the either the primary objective or even that specific topic that you were writing about. You're absolutely right. Um, and another thing which I always say, and, and certainly it w was a bit of a surprise to me, is it was only at the point where I was trying to um, put my put the structure of, of my workshops together that I really understood iOS development myself. Right, yeah. It took me trying to teach it to somebody before I absolutely understood it because you you're putting together you know a slide deck or something like that and as you're doing that you're you're asking yourself the question well what what are people going to ask me at this point 
And then you have to go digging into their research to answer that question. And sure enough, before you know it, you're a much better developer um, because you tried to teach it to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. It also makes you kind of second guess or rethink some of your like assumptions or some of the things that you've always been using because you know we talked about routines earlier but we have the same thing when it comes to coding where some you know patterns or techniques we might have been using for years without really thinking about why and then once you actually want to kind of transmit that to someone else you have to start thinking about well why am i using this and you might you know end up you know changing that or or you know learning more about that Yes. All right. But now I think we should get started with our main topics. And for this episode, we want to talk about three main things. And the first thing is, you know, how you produce an issue of iOS Dev Weekly. Because I think that, you know, a lot of people read this newsletter and uh, it's going to be interesting to hear, like, what goes into actually curating all of those different sources of content that exist in the community and to try to kind of make something out of that. Uh, We also want to talk a little bit more about how to launch and run an indie business because uh, that's something that I'm trying to do right now. So this is mainly an excuse for me to kind of pick your brain, Dave. (laughs) And uh, to also hear a little bit about, you know, how can you launch something on your own and and kind of turn that into a business? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who also have ideas for apps or projects and and are looking to kind of get that started. Uh, But we also want to talk a little bit about code, of course. We don't want to keep this a complete meta episode. Uh, And we want to talk about um, iOS development kind of trends in the community because uh, you, Dave, you've been running this newsletter now for so long and you've, I'm sure you've seen a lot of trends and things kind of come and go. So we want to, you know, uh, also hear a little bit about that and talk about these trends. Uh, but I think we should just get started. So um, we talked earlier about iOS Dev Weekly and how it kind of came to be, but can you go into a little bit more details into kind of what goes into producing a newsletter for you? So there's mainly kind of three phases to producing the newsletter. Um, There's, first of all, the gathering of the content. uh, And effectively, that just means reading a lot of blog posts. Um, Over the years, I would say that I've got reasonably good at um, fairly quickly getting a sense of a blog post um, without reading every single word of it. Um, I can quite quickly determine whether it's something that I am genuinely interested in or whether it's something that is not so much in my interest. And actually that's one thing which is uh, important in terms of um, I think how successful iOS Dev Weekly has been, but also just in how successful I can be at writing it. I never try to predict what people will find interesting. iOS Dev Weekly is very much written by me and uh like there was actually that was that was intentional when i first started it i i didn't want the this may seem like such a trivial little thing but it it was something i actually put some thought into i didn't want the from name on your email to be from ios dev weekly i wanted it to be from dave verwer and it still is to this day it's not from ios dev weekly it's from dave verwer and um and that was actually a big part of it because it was always what do I find interesting? And my hope was that what I found interesting, other people would also find interesting. Whereas if I were to try and predict what people would find interesting, I think that wouldn't have worked. Um, and so the collecting of the content is really just what I was already doing, which is reading blog posts and uh, 
focusing on what I found interesting. Yes, it's slightly more structured now. And yes, it's definitely something I have to do rather than something I, I was naturally doing. Um, but the, the, the fundamental, um, part of that collecting the content is what do I find interesting? Yeah, I think that's a really good strategy or philosophy to have. And I definitely have the same thing. Like when I write an article, it's not that I'm trying to predict like what people want to read about. Like sometimes I will ask like on Twitter recently, I asked about my new basics article series because that's something where I'm more addressing like a need in the community where people want more kind of, you know, beginner friendly content. But when I'm writing my main article series, that's just like what I'm interested in at the moment. Like if, if I, use some technique that I'm excited about and I want to I want to write about it I write about it like I don't think too much about is this going to you know be the most popular article I've ever written that's that's really not the point and I think that's that's really the way to create really like honest content that you can you know stand for and and to your point like you put your name on it like that you are the sender of the iosf weekly newsletter uh, it, it it's very personal right and I think having that approach is is usually a good thing and the style in which I write is also very much a conversational style, and it's it, it you should be able to read it as if I was talking to you uh was always the kind of idea behind it. Then the next part is the actual writing, and I split that into two phases really um there is the writing of my opening comment, which is um quite different from the writing of and the actual picking of the links and writing the short paragraph about each uh, link. And so the three phases are collecting everything, writing the comment, and then putting together the rest of the issues. So picking the actual links and uh, writing the the short uh, intro to them. Yeah. And I've seen that uh, you've been focusing more and more recently about that, like first comment section, like it's almost like that's turning into a little bit of a, you know, its own little piece, its own little article, uh, which is pretty cool. So what's kind of what's kind of behind that? Like, what's the what's the, what's the reason you've been going more in that direction recently? Yeah. So at the beginning, that didn't exist. Um, and over time, I started to occasionally just put like a little bit every now and again in that top part of the newsletter. Uh, but I think people enjoy it. And in fact, I did um, a quick survey a little while ago asking uh, people, did they enjoy it? Should I do more of them? Should I take that and put it on a blog instead of doing it in the newsletter? Because sometimes, as you may have noticed, sometimes they're a little long as well. Um, <laughs> right. And I mean, one thing about iOS Dev Weekly as a like an email newsletter is that it breaks every rule of email marketing and is still successful despite it because it's not email marketing. This is not a marketing exercise. This is something, this is content. This is a delivery mechanism for the content that I want to write. And uh, so yes, it breaks every single rule. And should you, if you're doing like a, a traditional email newsletter style thing, should you have a 10 paragraph introductory comment? Absolutely <laughs> not. That is a terrible idea. But actually, if the people are subscribing because they want to read those words, yes, that's exactly what you should do. And so I've, I mean, I've actually worked in email. Uh, iOS Dev Weekly uh, was originally put together using just MailChimp and uh, a couple of little command line tools that I wrote to uh, help me take some markdown and get it into MailChimp. Um, and then I developed a tool for that. That then became a product. That product got sold to an email marketing um, 
uh, company or a company that's involved in email marketing. And I actually went to work for them for a couple of years. So I've worked in that industry. And um, so I've seen all aspects of email marketing from this kind of newsletter, which is very different from your standard uh, email marketing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very big difference when you get uh, something like iOS Dev Weekly or or some of the other newsletters in the community versus when you get like you know a newsletter from an airline or right. you know or yeah. or a hotel chain or something like that. But but you're you're right that I have been focusing more on uh, trying to put those comments. Um, in more regularly. I don't promise that there'll be one every single week because I don't when I don't want to ever feel like I have to have an opinion on something because it's Friday. Right. But we all have opinions all the time and I decided to start writing mine down more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's it's really cool I think. It's a good addition to the newsletter as well and uh you know again just gives it a little bit more personality and that's really cool. Um but a big part uh, like you mentioned earlier, is of course also kind of summarizing all the content that you're linking to. And I can imagine that must be challenging as well, because, you know, when you're when you're reading an article, you know, my articles, for example, they tend to be around like 1500 words. So you're reading like a 1500 word article, and you want to sum that up into a couple of sentences. <laughs> so that that for me would be really difficult. So how do you usually go about like kind of summarizing something like that? Well, I think I have a very specific job to do when I'm writing that paragraph of text that goes under um, a link. I want people basically to know enough information about what's in the article that will tempt them, if they are interested in it, to click on the article and actually go and read it. Because the last thing that I want to do is is write such a good summary that you actually don't need to read the article. That's not my intention. Right. My intention is to send people's eyes not to the paragraph in iOS Dev Weekly, but to the actual blog post. Um, and so there is that balance between saying too much and which potentially actually dissuades people from clicking, um, while at the same time making sure there's enough information there that um, people can make a decision on whether they're going to find it interesting. Yeah, that sounds like a tricky balance sometimes to strike because... You know, sometimes you have like not a plot twist because we're not writing fiction, but you have some kind of like really key learning that you're uh, that you have in your article, and that key learning will of course be a big reason for people to read it. But you also don't kind of want to give it away. So yeah, sure. I can imagine that must be quite tricky. What's quite funny sometimes is, of course, some of the things that I link to are not blog posts; they are sometimes um, posts on Twitter, and so. In, on occasions, the uh, the paragraph of introductory text to get you to click on that link is actually longer than the tweet that it's linking to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that is quite funny. Cool. So uh, besides kind of putting the newsletter together, you are also uh, freelancing and you're doing, uh, you know, software development as well. And you're, you're an active iOS developer and things like that. So... Um, similar to, to my situation, I'm, I'm also kind of, you know, jumping back and forth between programming and actual creating content. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you balance your time between writing software and actually writing text and content and newsletters? I think part of it is making sure you have time set aside to do it. So I am doing some uh, freelance kind of contract work at the moment, uh, and that's a, a long-term, uh, well, not super long-term, but fairly long-term contract. It's, it's coming up on a year now. Um, and, but I've, 
I, I made sure that when I signed up for a, a longer term contract like that, that it wasn't a full time thing because I've tried to write iOS Dev Weekly while having a full time job. And that's when it really became a bit of a chore to do it. Yeah. When, when you don't have the time set aside. Um, so I make sure that I do have the time set aside um, uh, to actually do it justice and to make sure that I can um, put enough of myself into both the freelancing work and also the writing. Yeah, time boxing is definitely like super important, I think, if you want to juggle multiple things, especially when they are, you know, related, of course, because we are writing about programming and writing about, you know, Swift and all those kind of things. But it's also very different, like writing, you know, actual text and writing an article is very different from writing a program. So I think like having those like, you know, really set aside times to say, okay, now I'm going to sit down and the next three or four hours is just going to be dedicated to writing. For me, this is, this is really key. And if I don't have the time to set aside for that, I usually don't engage in that kind of project. And of course, sometimes you have to, you know, bootstrap it a little bit. You can't just like, you know, quit your day job and and start start writing because you have to, you have to get going. Um, But, but being able to just, take a few hours here and there and starting simple as well. If you just have one or two hours, just take those one and two hours to, to do what it is you want to do, whether that's, you know, creating content or working on a hobby project or launch a new app. I think that's really, really key to set that time aside. You're absolutely right. Um, and I also make sure, so with the comment, I tend to, if I'm writing a comment, if I have something to write about, I will tend to write that throughout the week. So maybe that will start with, um, just a quick note in like Ulysses, which is my uh, text editor, that, I, that kind of my notes editor that I use. Um, so maybe I'll I'll just jot down two sentences of that on a Sunday or a Monday, and then over the week I'll start to let that kind of process in my head, and maybe it will come into a comment by the end of the week, and maybe it won't. Uh, I have. Uh, a folder full of them, uh, w- which never made it into comments, but maybe one day I'll, I'll, uh, finish those off and make those into full comments. But, um, but that's, that's something that happens throughout the week, just like the collecting of the content happens throughout the week. But then actually writing the newsletter, I very rarely write a single word of the newsletter before basically Friday lunchtime. Right on the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be Friday morning, but I normally play tennis Friday morning first thing. And so um, and so that kind of takes up like an hour and a bit in the, in the morning. And so by the time I'm actually sat at my desk and ready to write, it's normally kind of 11, 11.30, something like that. Um, so yeah, it gets written fairly quickly and uh but i think that's actually a strength as well um and part of it is that gives me the chance for all of the content from the week to be published you know this is not something that i can prepare three weeks in advance and also like if you start on friday actually producing the newsletter and you know you're going to have to hit that publish button at the end of the day you also give yourself that natural kind of time boxing that we just talked about where you can't go on and on for three days producing this this newsletter which probably wouldn't be that productive or like a good use of your time anyway exactly yeah. so i think i think that's that's really good i do very much the same with my articles i usually like i write 99 percent of them on sundays and i publish them right after i'm done because again it's the same thing it gives me that kind of 
sense of urgency of, of, of having to produce something. So I don't, you know, half work and I start idling and I go to Twitter or, you know, I, I stay focused and I produce the thing I need to do and, and I hit the publish button. I think that's great advice. You know, you can spend forever getting something perfect. And if anyone has ever read an issue of iOS Dev Weekly, it's definitely not perfect. Like there's typos almost every week. Um, there's factual mistakes. Like on Friday, I actually uh, made a mistake with the um, comment on uh, the article about ABI stability. Uh, I had thought that I had understood the article. I hadn't read the entire thing completely. And I made, I made a statement in my comment that was actually not true. I went and updated it and I tweeted about it and all the rest of it. So, but like, it's definitely not perfect. Nobody gets it right all the time. I try my best not to do factual errors, but yeah, sometimes you slip up, right? And that that's fine. That's that's definitely fine. And uh, you know, you corrected it. You corrected a mistake. You move on. And you know, next week there's a new issue. So it's. Uh, I think that's that's definitely like a, a good thing to point out that you know it doesn't have to be like perfectly polished all the time. It's it's just like keeping the momentum going is more important. I think. Yeah. Awesome. So next up, we want to talk more in detail about actually running a business as an independent creator or a developer. But before we do, we have to make sure that this podcast stays up and running by thanking our first sponsor. And it's my good friends at Instabug. Now, Instabug has a very cool special offer for all of you listeners of this show that actually involves getting a free t-shirt. Instabug is an SDK that completely takes care of your beta testing and user feedback process so that you can debug, fix, and improve the quality of your app even faster. Through a simple one-minute installation guide, you'll have a seamless two-way communication channel between you, your testers, or even your end users. One of my favorite features of Instabug is their in-app feedback feature. This is incredibly useful in order to get quicker feedback from both testers and users. When someone wants to send you feedback, they can simply shake their phone. That brings up this super nice feedback UI that they can use to send you feedback along with screenshots, and Instabug will also automatically collect all of the diagnostics that you need to reproduce a bug, fix a crash, or adjust a broken layout. Speaking of crashes, Instabug also includes automatic crash reporting. Because no one wants to look through a huge list of crashes with thousands of one-by-one reports, and with Instabug, you don't have to, because they'll intelligently aggregate crashes into useful charts, overviews, as well as detailed reports containing stack traces, reproduction steps, and, this is incredibly useful, the exact line of code that caused the crash. Now, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg, because Instabug is not just a crash reporter, it's a complete solution for improved quality and for communicating with your users. You can add an in-app chat so that not only can people report bugs to you, you can let them know once that bug has been fixed and perhaps send a little nice thank you note. You can do user surveys, you can ask your users what they think of your app or what kind of features they'd like to see added and so on. And Instabug integrates with all sorts of third-party tools, such as Jira, Slack, Trello, and GitHub. So try out Instabug today and see just how much smoother it can make your app development, dealing with bugs and crashes, and communicating more with your users and beta testers. So where do you go? 
Just go to instabug.com slash Sundell. You go there, you can sign up for free, install the SDK in a few minutes, try it out, and that's it. You'll get a free Instabug t-shirt. How cool isn't that? Once again, that's instabug.com slash Sundell to sign up for free, get a cool t-shirt, and improve your team's workflow. Thanks so much to Instabug for their continued support of this show and all of Swift by Sundell. So you're currently a freelancer, but obviously like iOS Dev Weekly has become kind of a, you know, a business in of its own with sponsors and things like that. And right now, since the beginning of this year, I kind of made the plunge to say, you know, I'm no longer going to spend the majority of my time doing freelancing, which I was doing before, uh, but I'm instead going to try to spend most of my time on Swift by Sundell, on this podcast, on the other things that I'm doing for the community, uh, and try to kind of make my living from that. So... I wanted to, like I mentioned earlier, really kind of pick your brain of, of like how you've been getting all of these businesses that you've been running kind of off the ground and how you've been, you know, able to make them into more of a sustainable thing. Uh, but first off, I think it's, it's uh, the first question you kind of have to ask yourself is like, what is it about being independent that is appealing? So what is it for you, Dave? Like, why do you want to work as an indie? Well, first of all, congratulations on making that leap. And I think making that leap is really a difficult thing to do. Uh, I remember the first time that I um, quit my kind of paid job to start uh, a company was in 2006. Um, and it was definitely a scary thing to do. Uh, and I had no idea whether it would succeed. Um, but in, in, in order to, to answer your question as to why, I've always been happiest when I've been working for smaller companies. Uh, in my career, I've worked for uh, big companies. I, in fact, my first um, kind of professional job really was um, I did a, a year in the middle of uh, my university course. You go out and you do a year in industry uh, in the UK. And uh, I did that year in industry for IBM, which is about the biggest company you can imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh I loved that job. I really, I got on very well with that job and I enjoyed my time there, but I came out of it quite frustrated with how hard it was to get things done in that company. And that may not be the whole of IBM, but generally I have found myself whenever I've worked in or around bigger companies, found myself uh, wishing for the smaller companies. And I've always been happiest when I'm working in smaller companies. So an independent developer is the ultimate small company. <laughs> right. It's the smallest company you can get. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I like that aspect of it, but also I'm quite a generalist. I'm not uh, a specialist in any one specific thing. Uh, I can write code. I can do marketing. I can do a bit of design. I can do lots of things uh, to uh, a reasonable level. Uh, and I actually really enjoy that part of my job, which is I get to produce products or things, you know, whether that thing is a website or uh, an app or a newsletter every week, I get to produce that from end to end. Um, and I, I really enjoy doing all the different aspects of that job. And again, the bigger the company you're working for, the less, uh, 
generally, the less diverse your job will be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because when you're working for a big company, you're you're part of a big team, right? Like it's not just like you creating this one thing. And of course, like working in a team can be incredibly rewarding as well, especially for learning. Like you know, working in big companies and working with teams is what has caused me to learn the absolute most things. But when you build something on your own and you create something on your own that is that is your product that is your thing uh even if you collaborate with others but if, if it has like your name on it it is very personal and it has like it's something like kind of indescribable in terms of like the satisfaction that you get from launching something that you made with your with your bare hands so to speak <laughs> even if we're using our bare hands to type on a keyboard uh it's it's something that's really satisfying you know being able to produce something on your own I'm not sure I'd quite equate um, writing an app or writing an issue of newsletter with something like building a house. But I get what you're saying, John. I get what you're saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I always say that, you know, when I'm talking to my girlfriend, we're in the kitchen or something, you know, cutting things with knives. I say, you have to be careful, you know, I, I work with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's say now that someone listening to the show is has an idea for an app or or want to launch something. They want to to become more independent. They want to launch a new business. What would be your kind of advice on how to kind of bootstrap an indie business? Like, how do you go from like being employed by let's say a big company with a stable income to actually being able to support yourself using something you made yourself? It's a great question and it's a difficult question to answer, especially if you are in that situation where you're you're kind of in a regular job. And when you're in a regular job, you know, I've had regular jobs where I've also been trying to do things at the same time, like in spare time. And it's hard. Like you, you, you work all day at your regular job and then you, you come home um, and you, I mean, yes, you're excited to work on what you're working on, but it is just, it's taxing on your mind and on your body. Um, and so, it's a difficult thing to do and you have to at some point take a bit of a risk and you will not know whether um, what you're going to do is going to be successful. And in fact, what you do will probably not be successful in the way, even if it is successful eventually, it probably won't be successful in the way that you think it's going to be successful. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually something that I, over the years of, of, of doing this, I've come to um, kind of relax into that a little bit in in terms of not necessarily always sticking to the original plan. Like when I started, um, so the first company I started back in 2006 uh, was with myself and a business partner uh, I had at the time. Um, And we we started this company uh, together and we had a plan to write some software. And I'm not even going to go into what that software was because that was not what was successful. We did write it. We did launch it. It did actually start getting some users, but it was never successful. Um, and um, then we kind of pivoted a little bit and wrote some different software and tried some things there. And we were um, kind of getting some income from other places as well. So there was enough to kind of keep the, the lights on. Um, but not knowing which bit was going to be successful and letting the bits that were starting to become successful be the things that we concentrated on was really important. Um, and actually that's how the training business started. Um, oh, so 
I didn't intend to start a training company. Um, I was writing some iOS software uh, and launching apps and getting those apps on the App Store. This was the very early days because that training company, uh, or the training part of that company started in 2009, so a year after the App Store had uh, launched. So we had a few apps on the store at that point, uh, and um, I got an inquiry from somebody who I knew, uh, but... I'd never worked with before, uh, and she ran a training center in uh, Leeds in the UK, uh, and she emailed me one day and said, you write iOS apps, um, what we'd like to put on an iOS development training course, would you be interested in helping us with that? Um, yeah. And actually, my initial reaction to that was, uh, we had a quick phone call, and on the phone call, I said, ah, it's probably not something I can do because I don't have any training materials. Like there were, there were a hundred reasons not to do that. Um, and we ended that call and that could have been the end of it, but actually I thought actually maybe there's something here, which I should look into. And so I did a bit of research and I thought, well, maybe I can license some training materials. You know, I don't necessarily have to build everything. And I think this is a good, rule for running an independent business you don't and in fact shouldn't try and do everything yourself um work with other people like even if you only hire them to do a specific job for you rather than bring them into the business work with other people yeah and use services also like you don't have to build like i think as us as software developers like I am always very keen to build my own tools for everything. But for example, you know, we talked about MailChimp earlier, like, you know, using MailChimp for, for sending out emails is probably a better idea if you want to start a newsletter than writing your own email server and writing your own email delivery system. Because, you know, that's not a business you necessarily want to be in. You just want to create a newsletter. You don't want to, you don't necessarily need to build the entire stack yourself. And the time may come, like it actually did with iOS Dev Weekly, the time came where MailChimp was no longer the right solution. And I did build my own email server. Um, and, and, but that was a decision that was the right decision to make at the time when I made it. To, to start out like that would have 100% been wrong. And in fact, would have guaranteed that iOS Dev Weekly was not successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I can talk also from, from the other side here because, you know, I've been for years been building games with my friends, but we haven't really been shipping any game. And what's the reason for that? Well, I started out by building my own game engine. <laughs> so that's what I've been spending my last couple of years on. That's such a beautiful example. Yeah, and that's like the counter example. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm happy I did that because it's a hobby thing. I learned so much and, you know, I really like the engine I, I built. But, you know, when you're trying to get something off the ground as a business and actually, you know, trying to get some income from it, usually not a good idea to start by running your own game engine. <laughs> exactly. So I went out and I researched uh, companies that were licensing iOS development training materials. And I found a company in the US uh, that were doing that. And so I... I, I bought their I bought a license to use their training materials and contacted um, Linda back and she said right let's do it let's put this training course on and a few weeks later I was stood in front of a room of people uh, trying to teach them iOS development that was enough to prove two things it proved that there was a demand for that kind of training um, which is really important without me spending six months putting together. Uh, 
workshops. Um, and it proved that I could actually do that job of teaching somebody how to write iOS software. But the more training courses I ran using those materials, the less I, or it wasn't the less that I liked them, but it was more that I felt like I wanted to slightly change the way that I was teaching it. And I grew away from those licensed uh, course materials to the point where I thought, well, actually, we've proved the market. It's time to actually write my own training materials. So I put some time and effort into writing those training materials. And that became a very successful part of the business for a long, long time. And in fact, I ended up licensing my training materials out to other people who were teaching iOS development in the end. So it kind of came full circle in the end. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. It seems like to be a, be a trend with, with what you've been doing, like all of your projects is kind of, you start out simple and you use something that's already there, but then after a while you kind of take the training wheels off, if you will. And then you kind of, you know, you know, go deeper. You've also built up at that point, more domain knowledge, right? Like you've you've probably spotted some kind of holes or, or disadvantages in the materials you were using and you were thinking, you know, oh, okay, I have some ideas here of how I can address those by building my own. Absolutely. But you wouldn't have, have had that knowledge if you started out with that, you know, from the get-go. And that's really what happened with Curated. So Curated was a uh, software, um, it was a web-based uh, piece of software that uh, we built to effectively publish iOS Dev Weekly. And that started as a tool that was intended to save me some time every week um, uh, producing iOS Dev Weekly. So iOS Dev Weekly had become successful to the point where it was generating some money through sponsorship. And one of the things that I did with that money was put that into building some software to help make my life a little bit easier. When I started to build that tool, um, there was definitely the thought that if I build something and it's good, other people might want to use that, but it wasn't built as a product initially. And in fact, the first version, uh, if iOS Dev Weekly was being published with Curated. It wasn't called Curated at that point, um, uh, but it was being published with that tool for, I think, somewhere between six months and a year before we turned it into a product. And so originally it was just a tool for me. And then the experience of building it allowed me to, first of all, make sure that that software was the best software put, for putting together this kind of newsletter. And I'm fairly confident in that because it came out of three or four years of me putting together a newsletter like this every single week. And so I knew exactly the best way, in my opinion, of course, but yeah. <laughs> I, I knew the best way to put this stuff together. I knew how I worked. So, so the, the design of that software fell out of my workflow, really. Um, yeah, it's the classic dog fooding strategy, right? Absolutely. Like you were using yeah. your own product. Yeah. Um, and I still continue to. So that got turned into a product. Uh, that product then got uh, acquired. Um, and I'm actually no longer involved in the running of that product at all. Um, but I do still use it as a customer. Um, and I'm very happy as a customer. It's still, it's still a great product. So you've been mentioning throughout the show here now, like a couple of different projects that you've been involved with and working on, and you have a couple of projects ongoing at the moment. So one thing I also want to talk a, bit, a little bit about is kind of how you prioritize between all of these things, because that's something that people also ask me quite a lot, like with all the things that I, I'm working on, like how do I prioritize between these and how do you choose like what to focus on? So what's your strategy for, for that? I think it really comes back to 
what I was just saying a second ago, which is not putting too much time and effort into anything up front um, and instead looking at what's being successful, looking at um, uh, what is gaining traction, what is actually being used. Uh, so I'm actually at the point now where I am really keen to launch a few apps of my own. And so this contract that I'm uh, in right now um, is going to come to an end in the next few months. Uh, and I am going to not take on any more freelance work. So I'm going to effectively become indie all over again because Hooray. the problem with freelance work is it, yeah, it, it takes up a lot of time uh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it really stops me. Yes, it, I make sure that I have enough time to work on the things that I've already committed to, but it hasn't left me a lot of time to work on new things. And I really want to write a few apps and I have some ideas and, uh, and the reason I say a few apps is because I actually don't know which one of them, if any, is going to be successful. I have some gut feelings about which ones might be successful, but um, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, it's quite possible none of them will be successful. And in, a, in another year, I'll be uh, looking for another contract. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you don't know until you try, right? And is your, is your plan then to, to kind of focus on one app at a time? Or do you think you're going to be kind of juggling multiple projects at the same time? That's a great question. And the answer of doing multiple projects at the same time is probably not the right one. I have a couple of ideas that I'm going to put together really quickly, as in I'm going to spend, let's say, for example, two weeks with a very hard deadline of if it ain't done in two weeks, it ain't getting done. Um, and I think I'd like to play with a couple of ideas like that um, to see how those actually play out in terms of putting a proper design together, getting something ready to go, at least into beta in, in let's say two weeks, um, which I think is, is difficult to do, but is possible as long as you are extremely well disciplined with, um, how much you, uh, ask it to do, you know, how, how much you, you plan for it to do, uh, you can definitely do it. Yeah, it's that classic thing where, you know, you can either cut on scope or you can extend the time, right? That's the, that's, that's the two things you really can do. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier about like putting that time pressure kind of on yourself to force yourself to produce something and put it out there. So I think, I think doing something like that, it, even for an application, is probably you know, really, really good in terms of just getting yourself focused to say, okay, I'm going to dedicate these two weeks to this project, but after that, it better ship or I'm moving on to something else. And then some of the ideas I have are a little um, bigger than that, but um, but they can all be distilled down into something. Um, and so, yeah, some experimentation uh, is what I'm going to do to around a theme. Like, there's definitely a theme to everything that I'm planning to, to pr produce. Is the theme that they're all called iOS dev something? <laughs> Actually, none of them are called iOS dev anything. In fact, uh, none of them are anything to do with iOS development. I mean, I, they will be iOS applications and therefore right. indirectly to do with iOS development, but they are not, uh, the target audience for them is not going to be uh, developers. Cool. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're what you're going to be cooking up there. Uh, I think for me, it's it's similar. I try to focus on as few things as possible at the same time to to just stay focused. Uh, usually, I try to keep like kind of a, a working progress limit, if you will, of around five projects. So 
by that I mean like, you know, I have my weekly articles, that's one project, then I might be working on an app, that's a second project, etc. And then I always have a rule where if I hit five, I need to finish something or cancel something or, you know, get it out of my way one way or another before I can begin the new project. And the reason I've kind of put that rule for myself is that I love starting new projects. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people have uh, a lot of, you know, Xcode projects on their on their hard drive that is like, you know, file new project plus like five hours of work, right? <laughs> Where you have that initial boost of creativity. But I don't want to give into that temptation too much because I want to also, you know, ship stuff. And I think like having that balance of sometimes giving you, of course, the the freedom to start a new project, but trying to finish things before you do. So I, let me show you my development directory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, I think that's a common thing that a lot of people do. And in fact, for me, it's it's not even... I quite often don't even get to the point of file new project in Xcode. For me, I have a, a folder full of notes about things that I might want to do one day. You know, right? Just just the the the, the very seed of an idea um, is, is sometimes as far as it ever gets. But that in itself is a useful exercise. It is, yeah, absolutely. And learning kind of what to focus on and what to proceed with and what to kind of leave, you know, on the drawing board. Perfect. So this has been uh, super interesting, I think, to hear more about like kind of what goes into creating a newsletter and, you know, running a business and things like that, kind of more like meta topics, which occasionally we really like to discuss on the show because, you know, programming is so much more than just writing the code. It's, you know, it's much, much bigger than that. And so I think it's it's been really, really interesting. But we, of course, also want to talk a little bit about code on this episode. <laughs> so uh, the topic for that is kind of trends that we're seeing in the iOS community in general. But before we do that, let's take another quick break and thank our second and final sponsor, which is good friends of the show, Bitrice. Now, I've been using Bitrice myself for quite a while, before they were even a sponsor, and it's become a truly essential tool for me and for the teams that I work with. Bitrice is a fast, stable, and incredibly easy-to-use continuous integration service. Now, if you're only running your unit tests or UI tests locally, or if they're running on a Mac mini under someone's desk, or if you're manually building and uploading your app to App Store Connect, or if you constantly need to change configuration files or fiddle around with your continuous integration, then you should really try out Bitrice. The reason I use Bitrice and the reason I recommend them to all of the customers and teams that I work with is simple. It's because Bitrice is so incredibly stable. Setting it up for an app just takes a few minutes because it'll automatically scan your Xcode project and configure itself. Now, I love tools that do that, that configure themselves because there's no messy configuration files involved. There's no trial and error. There's none of that stuff. You just tell it which GitHub repository that you want to start automatically building and testing and Bitrice takes care of the rest. Then, once it's up and running, it just works. You push a new commit onto your repository and Bitrice will automatically build and test it. You want to do beta testing? Done. Bitrice automatically archives your app and lets you easily invite your testers to download a build. How about using tools like Swiftlint, Fastlane, Danger, or how about uploading to the App Store? Bitrice does all of that too, and that's through its flexible plugin setup, most of which is actually open source. So Bitrice is quite simply an all-in-one package to build, test, and distribute your app automatically. So try out Bitrice today by going to bitrice.io slash Swift. 
That'll let you learn more. And guess what? You can sign up for free. You can try it out and you can see just how nice it is to have a smooth continuous integration set up for your team and for your app. Now, once again, that's bitrice.io slash Swift, which helps support this show. And you can try out Bitrice for free. Thanks so much to Bitrice for making my development flow even smoother and for sponsoring this show and all of Swift by Sodell. So about trends in the iOS community, the reason I wanted to talk to you about that is because you, Dave, every single week you put together iOS Dev Weekly, and I'm sure you've been seeing so many different articles and content and videos about different topics throughout the years. So what for you is kind of some of the current trends that you're seeing in the iOS development community? I think it's it's interesting how iOS development has changed over the years. And I think the biggest change obviously has been the introduction of Swift. Um, and I think we're in a period of um, iOS development at the moment where the iOS part of iOS development is less important than the language because Swift came along and um, really turned iOS development upside down a little bit. Um, uh, the focus of the community at the moment and for the past several years has been on the language more than on the framework. And of course, there's another reason for that. That's not just, first of all, that's not necessarily a negative thing. But secondly, the other reason that I think this has happened is that iOS development, even though I still absolutely love iOS development, I've never been as happy with any technology in my entire career as I have been when writing iOS apps. I absolutely love them. And to be honest, Mac apps too, um, and TV and, you know, all, all the platforms, all the Apple platforms. Uh, but specifically iOS, I love iOS development. Yeah, me too. But it is not the cool topic that it was 10 years ago when the App Store launched. Um, and the pace of progress in platforms as they mature does slow down and that's going to happen with every platform and it's happened you know software development is very cyclical everything is very cyclical we your fashion is cyclical everything comes round and round again and we've seen this happen with many platforms before um and i think what's happening with ios is absolutely natural um but what's happened at the same time is we've got this brand new language well it's not brand new anymore it's five years old now yeah um, time flies yeah it still feels kind of new um we've got this new language that was dropped on us and that has changed the focus of the community a little bit and People are very much focused on the language and less on iOS. Now, that's not to say that nobody's writing about iOS development, as I've proven, hopefully, because um, my interest is more in the iOS side than actually the pure kind of language development or the pure Swift um, uh, kind of uh, topics. Um I still manage to fill a newsletter each week with stuff that interests me. Yes, a lot of that is going to be about Swift. Yeah. But... <laughs> A significant portion still is about iOS, but you've certainly, I've certainly seen a shift in the type of content people are producing. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in terms of kind of uh, content creation, if you will, it's, it's almost like, you know, how when Apple opens up a new app store, there's usually this kind of gold rush in the beginning to create kind of all the basic stuff that you need to kind of fill the gaps in the platform. And uh, it's kind of similar with the content creation side of things is that there, there was a huge opportunity, especially in the early years of Swift, to 
create like open source projects to create content, videos, material, uh, because there were so many people interested in learning it. And I would say we're still in this situation where there's definitely the demand for Swift content is is way, way larger than anyone can actually fulfill. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of also a reason why kind of the content side has shifted. And it's also because Swift is new and shiny, right? Used, used to be called shiny. That was the, that was the code name even. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that also kind of explains the shift in the in the community in general towards more like looking at the language itself. Yeah, but I think also Swift is now actually starting to slow down a little bit. Um, the pace of change of the Swift language is definitely less now than it was between. You know, do you remember Swift two to three? That was a that was a, oh yeah, that was a fun, huge one. <laughs> that was a fun few weeks. <laughs> fun. <laughs> f- f- fun is a good way of putting it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Swift is not a mature language yet, um, uh, but it is becoming more mature every year. And the pace of change in terms of both breaking source code changes, but the pace of um, the types of things that are being added to the language is slightly slowing down. The first few years of Swift were incredibly volatile, as anyone who adopted it early will remember. Um, and I think that's a good thing for the language that actually gives people who did maybe hold back on those initial f- first versions the confidence to come in and use Swift in in uh, in the real world. And of course, that's I mean, this is we're now talking a couple of years ago that people were doing this, but certainly people held back from those first few versions, right? Rightly so as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. And especially if you're if you're running like a big company, you know, you have a big team, you know, having that really volatile language, like not only the SDK or the platform, but the language itself can be can be really, really challenging. Another trend that I've been seeing in the community is um, more and more kind of also like a focus on simplicity, because to your point, like, the language has been changing quite a lot. We also have quite a lot of other kind of moving pieces because we have, you know, the ABI hasn't been stable now up until Swift 5. Uh, we have Swift on the server, which has been like working progress for a while. We have these new like Marzipan apps and Mar- the Marzipan kind of frameworks coming along. There's like all these kind of different building blocks like, that are kind of separate at the moment, but it feels like they're kind of slowly but surely kind of coming together. So one one trend that I'm seeing a lot is that you know, since there's been so much movement under the hood, I think that a lot of people have tried to go back to basics a little bit, kind of reduce the number of concepts or abstractions they're using in their code base, and instead like focus on the simplest kind of maintainable things since the underlying platform has been changing so much. I think you're absolutely right. And what I'm hoping that we see now is that now that the the language is becoming more stable and uh, less um, volatile in terms of the changes that are being made. I hope that we can see um, things get built on top of that language that help us make better um, applications. And so one of the things, as you mentioned then, is is Marzipan. And, you know, what we've seen of Marzipan so far... Um, we really don't know what marzipan is. In fact, let's actually just talk about the name marzipan for a while. I think it's hilarious that it's still <laughs> called marzipan. And right. The fact that Apple mentioned it on stage in the WWDC keynote last year and then didn't give it a name means that it will be called marzipan forever. Yeah. <laughs> even if that wasn't, you know, there's a rumor even that that wasn't the internal co- code name. That actually, whoever, I think it was Mark German that said that it was 
called Marzipan. Yeah. There's a rumor that that wasn't true and it was never called Marzipan. We will never know what the code name was, but it's going to always be called Marzipan from now on. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they don't give it an explicit name and if they really don't like push that name really hard in like the marketing, then it's definitely always going to be called Marzipan. It's Marzipan forever. Yeah. It's yeah. too late. But what's interesting about Marzipan is that we haven't really even seen what it will be yet. We have seen some of the results of what was produced with last year's um, version of Marzipan, which is the apps that shipped with Mojave. Um, and there has been a lot of talk about how good or bad those apps are and how Mac-like those apps are. But I still, I'm not ready to judge Marzipan at all yet because those apps were built with a version of the tool that's at at least a year old and probably wasn't in development for an enormous amount of time. And so I think that what we'll see this year um, at WWDC will be very interesting. And don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not expecting a brand new framework. I'm not expecting huge changes from what we saw. Um, well, we haven't seen anything of Marzipan. All we've seen of Marzipan is what people have dug out of the, um, the, the, private frameworks that are shipping in Mojave. Yeah. I'm not expecting huge changes from that, but I am expecting it to be um, an indication of where macOS development might go in the future. Um, and whether that will be a good or a bad thing remains to be seen, but I'm not ready to judge that yet. And I think that, you know, there's also rumors around, will there be some kind of completely new um, declarative UI framework for iOS and macOS applications going forward. Maybe there will be, unlikely in, in the short term future, I would say. Um, yeah, I feel like a phase two kind of thing, you know, like first you get everyone on board on the same kind of platform, uh, because right now, like all the Apple platforms are, are very, very different. And, you know, for historical reasons, for good reasons, maybe, but, yeah. you know, they're very different. And I think once you get everyone on board on, on the Marzipan kind of platform, you can then iterate on that and introduce new frameworks on top of that. But more importantly, I think that now that Swift has become a really good, stable base to build upon, we'll start to see indications of where iOS development goes on top of that platform. Yeah, absolutely. And it all kind of ties into that that angle that I mentioned earlier, which is this like focus on simplicity. Because if we think about it right now, like things are a little bit chaotic, especially if you are trying to ship an app like on multiple platforms, like on iOS and macOS. But hopefully with some of these frameworks, like we can unify more things. And sure, there will be trade-offs along the way, but I think in the end of the day, like, you know, a lot of developers right now are looking for like more simplicity. Like if I can just use the same framework on iOS and macOS, that will be a huge win. Yeah, absolutely. Another trend that I'm seeing personally, I don't know if you if you've seen this as well, is it feels like the iOS developer community is finally kind of getting into testing. <laughs> because that has been like, as someone like myself, who has always been like, not always, but uh, for a long time now, very passionate about testing and and not to the degree where I like always do TDD or, or something like that, but using testing as a tool, um, I've always been been very, very passionate about that. And I'm definitely seeing more and more interest now in testing. Like, when I wrote my first article on testing, it seemed like no one cared. <laughs> but now when I publish a new article about testing, people actually really like it. And it seems like more and more people are interested in that topic. I think you're right. Um, I think iOS development started out um, 
with very little focus on testing, actually, when, you know, testing was very well established in, for example, web development, um, way before iOS even was a thing. Um, but the early days of iOS development, I think there's a couple of reasons this happened. And I think, first of all, the type of apps people were writing in the early days, they were very simple applications. You know, the first yeah. couple of years of iOS applications, there wasn't really, people were making tiny little apps. And there is an argument to say that if you're making a tiny little app, testing is not the most important thing you should focus on. It's not something, you know, I'm not going to write unit tests for my fart app, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's not, and I think that actually shaped the, the the way that those apps grew up shaped the um, the development environment of iOS development a little bit. But you're absolutely right that in the last few years, um, testing has become a much bigger and rightfully so a much bigger part of iOS development. And part of that is that the platform has grown up. Yeah, big companies write complex applications for iOS platforms and they need testing. It's 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 a sign of the of the whole kind of industry maturing and and things growing more complex like you mentioned as well. And yeah. uh that's when you start bringing testing in. So I think it's also very natural and I think we shouldn't look at it as like a negative thing but rather just like a you know it's it's a positive thing that we can change and that we can bring in new techniques into the fold and testing is definitely one of those. And actually, I was just listening to your previous ep- episode with um, uh, with Ben, yeah. and uh, you, you said that you're not a particular uh, proponent of TDD as a very strict thing. And I, I think he said the same thing, actually. TDD, in some ways, got in the way of quickly prototyping something up and seeing whether it works. And almost the way that you approach development is different because of the the technique you're using. And I think there's, there's times to do TDD and there's times to... Um, to see what works. Yeah, absolutely. Like the technique that is the most appropriate usually depends on what you're trying to build and what phase you're in in the project as well. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, what do you say? Should we round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? I did see some questions coming in on Twitter. So uh, yes, let's do that. Let's do it. So our first question comes from Ricardo. And Ricardo wants to know, besides iOS Dev Weekly, which newsletters do you read? Are they Cocoa related or not? And do you have any suggestions? So I tend not to subscribe to all the various different iOS uh, newsletters. Um, I, uh, I I think writing an iOS newsletter is probably enough uh, of, of that kind of thing. I do have a couple of them on uh, RSS just to make sure that I, I can... Like one of the constant struggles with with writing iOS Dev Weekly is constantly trying to find the new people who are coming into the community so that I can read their blogs. And the other iOS newsletters are a good place for me to see occasionally like new voices coming in through uh, through through being found through the other uh, newsletters. Um, but I tend not to subscribe to them, kind of get them in my inbox. Um, uh, I do subscribe to the Swift Weekly Brief uh, because. Like I've said a couple of times, um, like my focus is, my interest is much more on the iOS side rather than the language development. But I absolutely want to keep myself very aware of what's going on in the language development. So that's a great way for me to do that. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a fantastic project, uh, which I, I thoroughly uh, endorse. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. It's a great, great uh, resource. I still subscribe to Ruby Weekly. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Even though I don't. Well, actually, that's not true. If I ever have to write like a little little script for something, Ruby is still uh, probably my my go to language for that. Uh, but I still subscribe to that, um, uh, and and I I will probably always still subscribe to that. Yeah, you kind of have to, right? Like it's part yeah. of your origin story. You know, it's kind of nostalgic, <laughs> must be in a way. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of non-technology ones, um, I think Dave Pell's Next Draft is great. Uh, I don't read it. Uh, I don't read every issue of it, but uh, I do dip in and out of that one. Um, yeah, so I, I subscribe to a fair few. Um, how about you? Do you subscribe to any? Apart from iOS Dev Weekly, of course. Yeah, of course, iOS Dev Weekly. <laughs> um, also Swift Weekly Brief, like we mentioned. Uh, it's uh, super great uh, just for keeping track of what's going on with Swift Evolution. Uh, another newsletter that I really like is the Hacker Newsletter, which is a summary of everything that's going on on Hacker News. Uh, I'm not one of those people that kind of hang out a lot on Hacker News or on Reddit or something like that, but occasionally there would be some really interesting articles in there. So I like getting that like weekly digest of all those like articles on on Hacker News. Um, but apart from that, honestly, like I don't subscribe to a lot of newsletters either. And I think it's partly because I'm not a huge fan of email in general, uh, but also because my main kind of way of consuming content is through podcasts. So I listen to hours and hours and hours of podcasts uh, every single week. And that's mainly because when I'm not working, when I'm not sitting like writing code or writing an article or doing something in front of the computer, I usually want to disconnect from all of that. So I like to just like go out with my dog, for example, take a walk or, or cook something in the kitchen or do something like completely unrelated. And when I do that, I usually listen to podcasts. So uh, that's where I get most of my kind of news and, and information and things like that. And then, of course, just like reading articles and, and blogs and, you know, and Twitter and things like that. But those are the newsletters that I kind of keep track of mostly. I also listen to a lot of podcasts and for similar reasons to you, um, you know, it is, it's good. You know, I listen to podcasts effectively all the time when I'm not sitting at my desk. Cause I, I don't feel like I can, I can't ever work while a podcast on. I, I, that's just not something my brain is able to do. Um, but when I'm driving, when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning the house, when I'm doing any of those other tasks, almost guaranteed I'm listening to some kind of podcast. Um, I do listen to a few technical podcasts, but I also listen to a lot of completely, uh, uh, unrelated, um, topics in in podcasts too yeah it's a it's usually a good thing to mix things up a little bit to not just not be focused on programming and technology all the time because it can get a bit monotone after a while excellent uh so our last question from this episode comes from jerome dantin and uh jerome has an interesting question here which is when do you know if it's a good time for a career change and what makes the balance between the safety of your current job and the risk of the unknown so we touched a little bit on this about like you know getting into more of an kind of indie business or, or doing something on your own but when do you personally feel like you know, this is when it's time for me to make a change in my career? I think this is a very personal question, and I think it will be um, different for everybody who is listening here today. For me, which is the only uh, the only way I can answer this, is, is to say what it is for me. But in the times when I have left a job or moved on from somewhere, it's been because fundamentally my gut feeling knows that I'm going to be happier doing something else. You know, I, I, uh, I have a little kind of spidey sense of knowing 
you just you just have a feeling of like I'm really not happy with what I'm doing here, and even that doesn't necessarily mean that I've been unhappy. If if that makes sense, yeah, it's it's more that I I could have coasted along in some of these jobs for years and years and years, and it would have been fine, and I would have done a good job for the company, and everything would have been fine. But I get that little itch of like actually. I've got some stuff that I want to do. And at the moment, especially, you know, as you get further and further through your career, um, you know, I'm 44 now, so I'm not quite at the end of my career yet, but I'm certainly thinking, well, what do I want to achieve before, um, before the end of my career? And, and that's certainly, I, I, that's not something that's going to happen in the next five or 10 years, but it's something that's going to happen in the next, you know, period after that. Um, and so part of that is to know, well, actually, if I'm going to achieve X, Y, and Z, then um, I need to make sure that I'm pushing in the right direction for that. And coasting along in a job was, is not the right thing for me to do. I've never really been comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think having that kind of North Star goal of, you know, not what I'm trying to achieve in the next year or six months or whatever, but where am I heading long term? Like, what are my long term goals? I think that's extremely important around this kind of thing, because... And that's bound to change also throughout your career and throughout your life. Because, for example, when I started working at Spotify, one of my goals at that point was to start working for a big company. So by working for Spotify, I actually achieved that goal. And I I kind of hit that path that I wanted to hit to my North Star at the time. But... After I was working for Spotify for a few years, that started to change and I started to have different kind of goals in mind. And I, you know, discovered open source, for example, and I wanted to work more with the community. I wanted to work more with with stuff in the open. So that kind of changed my tra- trajectory. And after a while, I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm kind of done here and I want to do something else. Where should I go that will kind of put me further along that path to my goal? And I think that's something that's good to keep in mind when you are deciding kind of where to go in terms of your career. Absolutely. Great. So, uh, Dave, this has been an amazing episode. So much uh, good stuff. And it's been really great to talk about, you know, content creation, you know, go behind the scenes of iOS Dev Weekly. And I think we've given some some good advice and tips along the way as well. So if people want to find you now, uh, maybe some people listening to the show are not yet subscribed to iOS Dev Weekly. Uh, where do they find a newsletter and where do they find you? So the newsletter is at iOSDevWeekly.com. Um, and in terms of finding me, um, DaveVerwa.com has a link to everything that I do, uh, but also on Twitter where my name is also Dave Verwa. So I'm Dave Verwa everywhere. Excellent. That's good branding. (laughs) And I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to those things as well. Fantastic. Thank you. But all that remains really is for me to thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It was a true pleasure to have you on. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell, and you can find the show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 41. A big thanks again to our two sponsors for this episode. We've got Bitrise that you can check out for your continuous integration. And we've got Instabug for really, really good crash and bug reporting. And links will be in the show notes for those things as well. But most of all, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.